Welcome, welcome. We are back. We are so glad to have everybody back from their travels. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. And I'm Angela Epley. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link. Okay, so Pepsi. Pepsi's still around, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like Pepsi to me is just like, is Pepsi okay? Like that's the question that is immediately associated with Pepsi. I think Pepsi gets a bad rap. I feel like when I was younger, they either had a higher sugar or caffeine content because like when I would, you know, sneak off to the convenience store to get lunch, like I would get wired on Pepsi in a way I never did on Coke. You, did, hmm. you think they were juicing it a little extra and that was kind I of I mean, the... when you're the beta to Coca-Cola's alpha, you got to do something. Right, have, yeah. have your hook, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel, you know, in general, soda has taken a hit, as it should. Right, Because sure. it, is, it is poison. Right. <laughs> that was weirdly dominant in uh, American uh, culinary you know, <laughs> life for so long. Culinary is not the word. No, yeah, that's life. Yeah. yeah, it was just... <laughs> but you remember uh, that Pepsi ad the one from the 90s where they were doing Pepsi points. No. Remember the Pepsi points, right? Points, I felt, feel like uh, were a big thing in the 90s. Yeah, it was like a reward system. You buy them and you collect them. I'm sure they still do them for for lots of stuff, but I I feel like- Like collecting dum-dum wrappers to get a really sweet prize, just- yeah. Monetizing or gamifying. Yeah, yeah. Like the, there was the really simple ones like where, you know, you collect 10 wrappers. and But then Kool-Aid and Pepsi and things like that experimented with more elaborate point systems where there was, you know, a veritable catalog of things to choose from. And in the late 90s, there was that ad, which I vividly recall and that what this article is about. And let's go ahead and say what the article is. The article is... <laughs> Get in on that. The article is, when a man took a joke at a Pepsi ad, seriously, chaos ensued. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, which is put on lithub.com. It's an excerpt from Humble Pie, When Math Goes Wrong in the Real World by Matt Parker. You know, in the commercial, this teen boy, this very cool teen boy, very Zach Morris type, you know, real... That's right. Styled hair, looking yeah, good. Real right, hipped right. up, real big man on campus type. <laughs> Uh, has been collecting Pepsi points, and it indicates on the screen it's 250 points, jacket, 500 points, shade, <laughs> all these cool things he's got with his Pepsi points. And then the grand finale of the spot is uh, he lands a Harrier jet oh, in front like, of you know, 100,000 points yeah, or something. It's like 7 million Pepsi points, right. Harrier jet. Someone did attempt to make Pepsi honor the commitment of delivering a Harrier jet. (laughs) Just like real genius. Like when Laszlo gamed that whole like system, you guys remember that movie with Val Kilmer and that's right. And uh, in, uh, I remember punch drunk love as well. Uh, Adam Sandler's character gets the trip to Hawaii because he like, he's able to exploit a loophole in some kind of pudding points. (laughs) Right. So he eats just a ton. He's like collecting points for individual packs of pudding in the six pack of pudding or whatever, in order to game this, system and get this trip to Hawaii that's but so this is kind of a classic theme is exploiting these you know giveaways and right. promotions and stuff but this gentleman named John Leonard realized is that you can uh simply purchase Pepsi points put it you send in your Pepsi points and any difference in the amount of Pepsi points you're providing can be just made up cash with a check yeah mm-hmm. or cash and the Pepsi points, I believe, were something like only 10 cents 
You're talking considerably less than yeah, seven million. Seven million Pepsi Point Harrier Jet is a mere seven hundred thousand dollars, right? Which, which is a steal when you're talking about a jet. That's right, yes. it's a bargain. You yeah. want to get in on that vertical takeoff and landing fighter craft. <laughs> that doesn't uh, come cheap. You know, no, 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 no. Twenty million, I believe, was the cost. The of price tag. Mm-hmm. So it would have been a heck of a deal. Now, obviously, Pepsi pushed back and said, "No, no. This, this ad is a joke." <laughs> mm-hmm. But this guy was serious to the point that he did scare up $700,000 for the purpose of buying this jet, as well as whatever money he needed to hire lawyers to take Pepsi to court and attempt to get them to honor this commitment. It's always fun when a courtroom argument hinges on the use of humor, (laughs) because then you have to like explain in courtroom friendly language. Very seriously. Why something is funny, Mm -hmm. which is like the least funny thing that could possibly (laughs) happen. Um, Quote from their argument. The teenager's comment that flying a Harrier jet to school, quote, sure beats the bus, evinces an improbably insouciant attitude toward the relative (laughs) difficulty and danger of piloting a fighter plane in a residential area as opposed to taking public transportation. No school would provide landing space for a student's fighter jet or condone the disruption the jet's use would cause. In light of the Harrier jet's well-documented function in attacking and destroying surface and air targets, (laughs) armed reconnaissance and air interdiction, and offensive and defensive anti-aircraft warfare depiction of such a jet as a way to get to school in the morning is clearly not serious. And he had to pay somebody like 500 bucks an hour oh, to write yeah. that down to oh, get the yeah. lawyer. I, yeah. mean, pro- I mean, probably more, right? Because lawyer, the paralegal. Oh, the sure. Plan. You got stacked I used to work costs. in a law office. So like, <laughs> I, like I, I'm familiar cheap. with how like the, uh, the, the billing gets stacked there. Um, That's so American, though, isn't it? Like, even if it's not serious, it's still such an archetypically American kind of mindset to have. Yeah, yeah. The idea of wanting to kind of get one over on, yeah, what is it? It's just, it's winning. It's domination. It's maybe to say, yeah, the the corporation clearly has all the power here. But I'm going to get him. It's the little guy. It's the underdog story. Yeah. yeah. Which way, you know, you, can, you can't help but, uh, I mean, root for Yeah, you appreciate a, that. An extremely destructive, a personal command of an extremely destructive I mean, did piece this person even hardware. think about the upkeep of having a vehicle like this? I, I would assume that the plan would be to simply, you know, sell so, it and make, you know. Flip a, it on the black yeah. market. That's right. Yeah. There you go. Well, and I, I happen to know there's actually quite a lot of regulations about selling stuff like that to who you can and cannot sell it to. So he actually may have had a harder time selling it than he thought he right. might have. If he could even get it in the first place, which I'm guessing this story does not have a happy ending. Well, yes, unfortunately, <laughs> the court did decide Aww. in favor of Pepsi and uh <laughs> Thereby set somewhat of a precedent for our understanding of like when zany humor, quote unquote, uh, <laughs> in advertising does not constitute a legitimate an offer. Promise. But one thing that they did, and this is kind of really the bulk of what Matt Parker wants to talk about in this article, is they increased the threshold to in the advertisement to 700 million. Oh, they changed the ad. Yeah, they changed the ah. ad, the ad to say seven hundred million, and an amount that would be in excess of the actual a uh, cash value of the Harrier of jet. a Harrier jet. But for Matt Parker, this is, I guess, an interesting case because in his book. He seems to be talking about ways in which human beings are kind of inherently bad at math and why we need to 
be taught math because our intuitive understanding of numbers often goes awry. They simply chose 7 million. Right. Some ad exec just went, 7 million, that's a big number. Yeah. Yes, and didn't yes. even think about. Yeah. 7 million, that's Like big. the Austin Powers movies, $1 million yeah. failing to take into account inflation right. and things going, like that. Okay. Right. Yeah. So he kind of pivots in the article to talk about the particular weakness we have in understanding the difference in scale between a million, a billion, and a trillion. Sure, yeah. There have been studies that show that humans instinctively perceive numbers logarithmically, I'm quoting now, not linearly. Hmm. A young child or someone who has not been indoctrinated by education will place three halfway between one and nine. And this was also studied, I believe, with an indigenous tribe somewhere that was kind of fully isolated. And there seems to be a kind of instinctive preference for three because of its logarithmic, because like it one times three is three, mm-hmm. and then three times three is nine. Mm-hmm. So something uh. instinctively in our brain seems to prefer that. Fractals. It all comes down to fractals That's for me, right. man. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, which um, I did try with my two-year-old, uh, <laughs> but he did not really. Didn't understand the question. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So we have to kind of work on the concept of midway. But then again, if I te- if he learns the concept of midway, he's going to learn a linear concept of midway. So mm-hmm. I, I don't, know, I yeah, don't know if point? I can produce the question for him correctly without spoiling the broth. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think so. a three-year-old is about half the height of a nine-year-old. So maybe you're thinking is like age, you know, you've got a, uh, in the case of the children, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that 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 could be the case. Yeah, I, this I is totally unfounded, but it comes down to fractals for me in terms of like how mathematical processes or growth are represented in nature, and they typically follow like the Fibonacci sequence. Yeah, the golden. Yeah, right. So maybe geometrically or logarithmically, there is some sort of pattern inherent in how we understand the natural order of things. Like mm-hmm. I didn't know a three-year-old yeah. is about half the height of a nine-year-old. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's also it. It seems to be a, a question of our inability to. To understand that like how significant the mass is and not just like the rate of growth or change so right so in our heads we're like okay yeah a, a billion's a thousand times more than a million and a trillion's a thousand times more than a billion so the relationship between like those two is kind of equivalent even right but, but, it but it's not no i mean a thousand times more of a thing that is a thousand times bigger is a lot, 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 lot bigger, right, not just, right. you know, one step up the staircase. So, yeah, big numbers, big fighter jets. Pay attention uh, to Pepsi Cola, Yum Brands, KFC, Taco Bell. <laughs> uh, and legal soft. interpretations dismantling humor, which I find absolutely delightful. Yeah, they're good. So check it out on lithub.com from Humble Pie when math goes wrong <laughs> in the real world by Matt Parker. <laughs> That's all I got on that one. Next link. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Ooh, in sync today. This is from Alexis C. Magical at The Atlantic. The article is titled, The Way We Write History Has Changed. A Deep Dive into an Archive Will Never Be the Same. Ooh. Oh. So libraries, we kind of know what they do, right? We've Books. books One assumes, yeah. Media, <laughs> magazines, little, little things like that. Little computers where mm-hmm. uh, my, my kid can like tap the screen like kind of relentlessly. Just beat yeah. on it. Just hoping for something to happen every yeah. time he taps. They, they basically function as a way to spread knowledge that's been compressed into books and media. But what do you guys know about archives? 
Well, I mean, they just are collecting older stuff in my in my my impression is that an archive is like a library, <laughs> but mustier and you're not allowed to touch stuff like you have yeah. to be a little more gentle. If you'll forgive a uh, short, stupid digression, what I always think of when I think of archives. So we record this in Austin, Texas, and our university here has the Harry Ransom Center, yep. who, mm-hmm. which is like one of the kind of big archives out there. They're mm-hmm. like relentless in acquiring artists and <laughs> other prominent persons. David Foster Wallace's notes are in there. All of yeah. his material. Yeah. But yeah. um, one time when I was a student at UT, we were touring like the Harry Ransom Center, like the actual archives of the Harry Ransom right. Center, not just the public facing exhibits. And I just walked past a filing cabinet with a sticky note on it that said Burl Ives Papers. <laughs> Nice. So that's what I think when I think of archives. I that's think their labeling <laughs> system. Yeah, they, they just bought Burl Ives' filing cabinet, and eventually someone will go through it yeah. and right, sort right. it. So this article starts to look at how technology has really started to impact the way we understand history as a discipline because of how archives are musty one at a time. They'll do a full security check. You have to put away all your personal belongings. You can bring in maybe like pen, paper, maybe a laptop. Maybe mm. a cell phone. But then when you come out, they'll pat you down. Make sure you're right. not actually not stealing take, stuff. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is precious, irreplaceable. And so what's happening is that originally going to the archive had a lot of friction. You had to have money to actually reserve the time. You actually had to go to the archive in person. Mm-hmm. But what's happening with digital media is that it's made it a lot more democratized. More mm-hmm. people have access mm-hmm. to these things, which is changing the way we are writing history. And there are a lot of people interviewed in this article that are careful to say, you know, this isn't better history. It's just, just different. It's different yeah. history. And we all know history as a discipline is obviously going to have some degree of subjectivity that it... Always, it, yeah. It, always. Like, it, it pretends that it right. doesn't in these are just the facts and things like that. But now when you go to an archive and you have a cell phone or, you know, a digital camera, your time there can be way more efficient because instead of actually, you know, marinating on the stuff that you're doing at the archive, you're just snap, 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 snap. You're capturing as much as you possibly can. Right. Go home and look at it at your leisure. Exactly right. So these kind of seem like a subtle shift, but it's really reshaping the way that history is being done. There's also more of an expectation that because you have more access to this, that you should be more interdisciplinary in your work, that you're able to grab and connect more dots than instead of just keeping it kind of localized to the place itself, which again, isn't worse or better. It's just different, right? Sure. It just provides a a larger, wider perspective on something that on the one hand is larger and wider, but on the other hand, doesn't necessarily capture how the people living at the time felt about it. Right, right. So that leads to a lot of overconfidence. People can overestimate their knowledge when it looks like you have everything. And so there's Mm. some, you know, intellectual fallacies and biases that can come into place. Kind of interesting. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily turn my nose away at more diverse authors looking at original source material and connecting dots that have typically been in the hands of wealthy Westerners. Sure. Which is how a lot of our history has kind of come about. This is making me think of the very sad suicide of, uh, do you remember Aaron Schwartz? It's an internet activist who hacked into JSTOR, essentially. I oh, and yeah, he was, yeah, he was all the articles. in trouble and just sort of, yeah. Well, yeah, MIT was fixing to throw the book at him and get, get him, you know, something like 35 years this. in prison yeah. uh, for it, and he hung himself. Uh, I just wonder, you know, I mean, 
control of the archives right. is something that gives academies and other institutions revenue, actual yeah, money and yeah. power, right? In so they care society. It's, so I mean, yeah. is there pushback when when people try to go in and take photos of documents with their cell phones? Do they try to limit access or this article doesn't really go into that? I think it's probably logical to assume that this is sort of inevitable, especially since something like that happened and ended in such tragedy. I mean, what kind of archive? now wants to be responsible for someone committing suicide because they were trying to protect their work. Yeah, right. yeah. I yeah. mean, that that's just, it's a bad PR move, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that everybody's got cell phones now too, it, it seems like it should be a net positive to make sure that whatever information is ostensibly accessible to everyone if they have the time and the money and the travel funds to get there. At the same time though, with the rise of deep fakes and things like that, sure. you know, the potential for fudging or altering these right. kinds creating of things. historical documents from whole cloth, just saying, oh, I promise this is a firsthand account when yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. you know. That's always kind of in the back it's, of my mind. Yeah. It's 2020, yeah. you know. Yeah, good. It's good. Don't throw it away. <laughs> Keep them. I've still never been to the throw, Ransom Center. I've always been to. Don't throw away Burl Ives' grocery list. That's right. That, that might be important. You might need to know what Burl Ives was eating. <laughs> Famous um, people. They eat just like we do. <laughs> yeah. Next link. Next, Next link. link. So obviously everyone in this room likes to talk, but the question I think we need to ask ourselves is what if, for example, this podcast were recorded on another planet? Yes, please. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who's funding that Patreon? <laughs> so uh, there's obviously a lot of problems with putting this podcast on Venus, for example, instant death, that sort of thing. Methane. But <laughs> this article in particular from popsci.com goes into specifically the issue of what your voice would sound like on oh. a variety of other planets and moons because of the changes in the atmosphere. Our voices are sound waves traveling through the air. Without the air, mm -hmm. you're in a vacuum. There is no voice. Obviously, stands to reason with a different atmosphere, our voices would actually sound different. And they go basically planet by planet. What would this planet sound like? So on Mars, 95% of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide, which, because of its structure, it absorbs vibrations. So that actually, if you had speakers blasting on the surface of Mars, they would be barely audible about 30 feet away. So you just deaden that sound immediately. And they also note that the vibrations that do go through are slower. So everything would be lowered to kind of a husky bass tone yeah. in this sort of Doppler effect. And then, for example, on Titan, not a planet, it's a moon, but it has a similar gas mix to Earth, which is one of the things we like, but it's about 50% denser. So while your voice would travel about as far as it does on Earth because of the makeup of the atmosphere, the fact that it's dense means that it would go more slowly. And again, you would get that kind of deeper bass tone. We would all sound mm. much lower. Cool. And the atmosphere, Venus is a very interesting one. The atmosphere on Venus is so thick that it would almost be like talking in water where your vocal cords would be physically straining to move. It is a very, very, very dense. It's like soupy. And so physical slowing of your vocal cords would make your voice lower. But the waves, as they traveled through that thick atmosphere, actually travel faster than they do on Earth. So they would actually be higher. So you have this combination lower and higher effect, which scientists have specifically likened it to a Donald Duck voice. Yes! We would oh, all yeah. sound like Donald Duck if we were yeah. on Venus, assuming that we lived for more than a tenth of a second, which we wouldn't. Yeah. And I was really excited. I was like, oh, we're going to go through all the planets. And then after Venus, it was like, and everything else has virtually no atmosphere. There'd be no sound. <laughs> so that was kind of a letdown. But, yeah, <laughs> but I thought it was know. really fascinating to think about, you know, this idea of things we take for granted. We're like, oh, yeah, of course, there's horrible gases and we have to learn to breathe. But you don't think about basic stuff that we live with every day. Like, what do I sound like? You know, and for example, when people hear themselves on a recording, yeah. obviously 
it doesn't bother us because we're used to it. But most people, when they hear themselves yeah. on a recording, they're like, I, I don't sound like that because their own voice echoes in their head. Right, right. Due to the acoustics of their literal skull. Right. Yeah. Then it does for other people. Right. So right. I, and in I, your head sound very smooth, very velvety, very sexy. Are you saying you don't no. sound smooth and velvety and sexy right now? I uh, sound like kind of like a, an annoying guy to me. <laughs> I, I'm wearing headphones right now. And, I was, and uh, when I talk, I'm like, this guy's pretty annoying. He's very punchable. Like he's yeah, just... <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't like it, don't like it. But I mean, that's a whole other complicated self-image <laughs> question. I wonder how this would affect like musical tastes, you know, in terms of like, if this is the way that sound mm-hmm. and human voice typically carries, are we going to have more like IDM or would more trebly kind like of music? Like on Venus, would we have more IDM? Yeah. Or, you know, like, <laughs> would we have more, you know, electronic, would we want bassier music? Right, or... because your preferences are now changing based on the fact that it sounds different. Right. You're not mm-hmm. able to hear the song you used to be able to yeah. hear. Or yeah. would something more like a harpsichord be like the most soothing, like, you know, sound like a piano? Right, because basically. now it's down. It's lower and, yeah. you know, th- that would be really interesting to think about. There's, like, a, there's a, a subgenre that is people sometimes call it like space rock, cosmic, kind of like ethereal flowing, you know, and instrumental rock. And and it would be pretty embarrassing if space rock actually <laughs> sounded very bad in space. That's right. You, you've, you've like gone if and... you were you were hanging out in a <laughs> yeah. Venusian like colony. You Somebody know, you, puts on some space rock and you're like, turn it down. You're like, oh, it sounds stupid. My neighbors. Oh. Now that I'm on space, this actually sounds stupid. What a naive idea of what it would be like to rock out in space. And then this again, was. if everything sounded like Donald Duck, like I think we would all get really sick of music entirely. We'd be yeah. like that. Everybody or, just shut up. No more talking. Or metal becomes the dominant yeah. genre because I can totally see Donald Duck mm-hmm. working as a metal vocalist. Sure. Well, Disco Duck was a hit. Was it? Was that a thing? Yeah, Here so on one Earth. Of, one of the novel. <laughs> That's right. You can't say. You don't know. Any well, that, that on Venus, it would be a double Donald. It would be like oh. a double Donald. So <laughs> Donald processed into Donald. You know? Yeah. So that would be that'd be tough. That'd be like when you run the filter twice in GarageBand. <laughs> you get pretty extreme results. I would love to hear people submit their examples of like, this music is for Venus. This music is for Mars. That's true. You would have to sort of consider the source and mm-hmm. be like, this is the CD that you only play here because otherwise you're not getting the full experience. <laughs> right. Which actually, and this is a totally random side note, but Bach did some stuff like that where he wrote pieces that were meant to be played on mistuned pianos. What? He wrote right. he wrote a piece, I think it was called The Well-Tempered Clavier, and it was basically, in there was a, a code almost in the little looping at the top of the manuscript where he indicated how you should mistune the piano so that this piece sounded the way he intended. And it sounds fine in a not mistuned way. So people have just been right. like, well, play it the right way. Right. But there is definitely a piece embedded within it where he's like, no, 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 you're going to drop this. You're going to drop these notes. This is how it's supposed to sound right. in my head. Well, oh. I'm not I'm not smart about classical music, but it wasn't one of the key things about Bach is that he essentially created our idea of what modern Western tonality is. So like I'm not I'm not entirely sure. I do know that the concept of A, for example, has changed over time. Like now I think it's four hundred forty megahertz. I think uh-huh. that's right. Don't yeah. But it but it used to be somewhere like three ninety. Like slowly over time it has shifted. And all the other notes have shifted with it, so everything is still in key, so to speak. But that Hmm. our concept of what an A is, because back you couldn't measure megahertz back then. They hadn't even invented the term. And so there was just sort of a general understanding of what an A was. And over time, it sort of evolved until they finally were able to say, no, we're putting a mathematical value on it. This is it. The machine can measure it. No more questioning. (laughs) It was a a general concept, which at the time probably was like, oh, well, the A is the one that makes God 
Like, like, <laughs> I smile like, upon the you. A is the one that represents God's mercy, and the C <laughs> is the joy of God's presence. That's right, and, and, and like, it was all thematic know, at the time because you know. it was the only option. Yeah, the so. E is a precarious warning. Take heed. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right, next link. Next, next link. link. All right, this is from Wired. This is by Simon Van Zulen Wood. Oh, and what a it great is name! Yeah, good name. The title behind the scenes at. Rotten Tomatoes. You guys, uh, uh, you like movies? You like the pictures? Motion absolutely. Pictures? Oh, yeah. Sure. You know? Yeah, and I like Rotten Tomatoes. I, I I have a kind of war going on with my husband where I'm like, you know, trying to explain how they do aggregates of reviews, right? Mm-hmm. They'll do... Sure, they don't review the thing. They collect the reviews. Exactly. And, yeah. and then they average them out and then here's what the critics are saying. These are what the plebeians like yourself are saying. Yeah. And... <laughs> right. Yeah. They consider everyone's yeah. opinion. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. But they divide it very carefully. Mm-hmm. Well, for anyone who doesn't know, which I... I would be shocked if anyone doesn't know because Rotten Tomatoes has succeeded in becoming a very pervasive point of reference. But oh, sure. Rotten Tomatoes is the site on which uh, reviews of movies are aggregated. Each review is determined by the editors to be fresh or rotten, positive or negative, and one of the arguably controversial things about Rotten Tomatoes, but something that they very much stuck with for the sake of simplicity and clarity is like at the end of the day, a review is either positive or or negative. That's right. It's the Roger Ebert yeah. thumbs up, thumbs yeah. down. It, yeah. doesn't, That's it, it doesn't matter like if the critic is super enthusiastic about it or just like kind of grudgingly positive about it. That's still positive. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. The thought being that you aggregate these all together and you get a good general sense of where mm-hmm. the quote unquote consensus is around a movie. So this is done as this article goes into detail about by actual human editors. There's no, as I was thinking, I, I had assumed that there was probably at this point, based on nothing, just my assumption, <laughs> at this point that like, oh, I bet they're doing like some kind of like quantitative. Yeah. Oh, like, you know. like AI scanning of the article and just picking out the words and being like, oh, yeah. if you see the word exquisite, that's clearly a positive right. yeah. review. Like quantifying the different sentiments that are in there, what's going to be more or less, you know, heavy positive or neutral positive, and then, you know, assigning some kind of value to it mm-hmm. and crunching a bunch of numbers. Yeah, yeah, because I feel like that's the direction all of these Everything. things are going. Yeah. And Rotten Tomatoes at this point is no longer, you know, like some scrappy little website sure, they've got the it's money owned either. by actual big conglomerates that own movie studios or mm-hmm. have interest in movies do own pieces of Rotten Tomatoes and of course that's something people you know sure there's a conflict of interest there if Warner be... Brothers is like oh look all of the positive reviews <laughs> made it in and somehow a couple of negative yeah. reviews just disappeared yeah, yeah people so are always accusing the side of maybe being gamed in one way or another. There's a lot of arguments, some of which are motivated by, you know, I think a perfectly reasonable suspicion of giant conglomerates. <laughs> Other arguments, which are more like bad faith nonsense about, I don't know, like Marvel and DC fans right. slagging each other off, like, oh, Rotten Tomatoes is clearly has a bias against oh, yeah. DC it, movies yeah. and is like, oh, the Captain by Marvel, Marvel thing, I think, was a like, good example yeah. of that, right? Where people were starting to basically flood Rotten Tomatoes before well, the ma- movie had come out. Right. Because they were going out of their way to give it. But yeah. that's why they split the critic scores on the audience score. Right. Yeah. Like, I really like it. I don't like it and like it. But I, I'm always fascinated when a movie has a really big disparity between the, between the audience score yeah. and the critic score, especially when the critic score is kind of middling and the audience score is like 99%. I'm like, okay, I... What it means to me when I see a score like that is I interpret it as a fun summer romp that's like, yeah, it's not, you're not going to walk away with a new understanding of the universe from this movie, but it's fun. 
And yeah. that, you know, people like it. And that's that's what this movie is. I've always felt like, oh, if a movie is like super heavily marketed and it's like about 90 some plus percent of Rotten Tomatoes, it probably means that there's a ton of people who are like, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, like it's not necessarily an indication that this is a deeply interesting work. Well, do you guys ever read the little like pull quotes or money quotes that sometimes the critics will have attached to their ripe red tomato or green splat <laughs> icon? Yeah. 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 And those can be helpful for sure. They right. kind of give a little nuance about yeah. like, oh, the actor was fantastic, but the costuming was pathetic, <laughs> you know, or whatever, where they're like, no, there actually is some nuance to yeah. my yeah. opinion in this. And it's, it's funny because sometimes you read and you're like, wait, why is that how is that positive right you, know, <laughs> like, you pulled a quote like, that didn't I've, yeah. i being a big movie nerd or uh, I, I prefer the term cinephile uh, <laughs> of course you do you know <laughs> i do use rotten tomatoes a lot just because it's super helpful to just sure, it's have convenient, a ton yeah. of content link from there and 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 i don't really go by the score but i like to see what writers that i like say about yeah. a movie it's fun because uh, you know some of them you can tell are really 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 irritated by the fact <laughs> and it goes into this in the article that like sometimes they will ultimately reach out to a critic and be like I, I i can't figure out from your right. review did you like it or up, not like... thumbs up or thumbs down which is like you know some writers i think some of perhaps the more like interesting writers have deliberately avoid even like writing reviews that can be easily parsed by rotten tomatoes because at the end of the day it's like is it that interesting whether or not i liked the movie it may not be the most interesting thing mm-hmm. i have to say about it and i think this is particularly funny in the article because it talks about the fact that one of the the editors is kind of on this mission right now to get all the movies on rotten tomatoes oh like, like Ancient like, movies. And, like, and speaking of archives, you know, this yeah. person is, you know, going through the archives of you know, newspaper publications to try and find reviews so that they can do Rotten Tomato ratings for everything from the beginning of movies. So they actually <laughs> did put up a page for the Kelly Gang, okay. which is thought to be the first feature length that we know about because a lot of movies have been lost. Sure. Um, a 1906 Australian movie. So It's a very so, Australian title too as well. well yeah. like, that feels about the very, Kelly Gang. Yeah, that's know? on brand. I like the, it. The, the, Do you have any samples of some of the early reviews on that movie? Well, yeah. This is the, I'll, I'll quote from here. He was able to find a couple reviews. One from the Melbourne paper, The Age. A quote from the review is, a conscientious and on the whole, a creditable effort has been made to reproduce the tragedies as they occurred. And if there were any imperfections in detail, probably few in the hall had memories long enough to detect them. <laughs> Might have been wrong, but who cares? So Reviews have been damning with faint praise since the yeah. early 1900s. Yeah, How about I mean, that? Well, it uh, feels like um, they were probably theater critics. Is oh, how yeah. you fall into this yeah. gig. And so automatically you're like, this is replacing the thing I love. This is a lower form of art. Like you, I think all the critics back then are going to be a little determined Isn't to find problems. Is that not true of critics throughout the ages? Yeah. Though? Every time I mean, you get a new format, you get yeah. Well, I mean, I, it's not really true now because you go on Rotten Tomatoes. It's like people, <laughs> there seems like there's so many people who write semi-professionally about movies who are just like, wow, just I love, I can't get enough of these movies. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? Enthusiasm definitely takes hold at a certain point, but th- that was fresh. Oh, or, that so yeah, that was considered he, he a positive one. Okay, this, but then he found this one in Sydney's Daily Telegraph. The films are clear and distinct. The chief actors concerned in the Bush drama are fairly recognizable. <laughs> the photographs are taken in Kelly Country, and after due allowance is made for certain acknowledged liberties taken, the illustrated record is probably as satisfactory as anything of the kind procurable at this distant date. <laughs> 
<laughs> the illustrated record. So he's like, he's like, I, he called that one rotten. I don't know. Like, this both really feel middle middle of the road. Yeah. So yeah, right now that 1906 is the Kelly Gang is rated 50 percent. 50 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> so right down the middle, a very very divisive uh, movie. <laughs> one more fun fact that is very striking: the site's founder has says he landed on the name Rotten Tomatoes while watching a movie called. Liolo, an Italian movie, about a boy who thinks he was conceived when an Italian peasant fell into a cart of semen-covered tomatoes. <laughs> oh, God. So, wow. Uh, yeah. How's that for provenance? And so he watches that and he goes, I should name a company after that. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, semen tomatoes was already taken. Uh, that's, well, yeah, someone, <laughs> someone had that domain and <laughs> you don't want to go there. <laughs> Oh, oh my goodness. Those are words I did not expect to come out of my mouth today. Thank you, Curtis. You are most welcome. <laughs> All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. Well, you know, we're talking about food. Let's keep this going. Uh, let's talk about fake meat. Have you guys tried any of these impossible burgers or Beyond Meat burgers? I have. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm very, I'm very uncomfortable with that kind of stuff. I just, I, first of all, it feels very post-apocalyptic. I don't like the idea of like this was grown in a lab and I don't, I just, don't, I don't know what went into it. But also this idea that I am being tricked. Like, if it really tastes exactly like meat and it isn't meat, what else are they lying to me about? <laughs> like, I do, I, I'm just, I'm a very cynical, suspicious person and I don't, I don't like it. So I've tried a couple and yeah, I mean, it's definitely gotten way, way, way better. Although at this point, I'd rather have like a black bean taste Recognizable protein-y. as a vegetable source yeah. as opposed to obfuscated. Yeah, but it, right? it, it tastes meaty in the sense that it's like hearty and has like that kind of texture yeah. to it. We've got yeah. a perfect division here. I am 100% science faux meat. I reintroduced poultry back into my diet like a couple of years ago. But I haven't done beef, lamb stuff like Mm -hmm. that for many, many years now. And they started selling the Beyond patties over at Costco, like in a huge pack. And I am over the moon for them. They do the thing where like they've got like little fat globules in there that'll actually kind of like seep. And I mean, Asia's also had us beat on this for ages, right? Sure. You know, there's some suspicion that I've had going into like, you know, ordering a vegetarian meat. I'm like, this is a little too convincing. Was there something lost in translation? I don't know. Uh But um, so we we know that it's really having a moment right now here in the United States. Sure, it's very popular for sure. It really is. I mean, they said 75% of millennials eat meat alternatives and the faux meat industry, quote, plans to take down a double-digit portion of the beef industry in the next five years, Mm. even though it only currently makes up less than 1% of the U.S. markets. So the issue that they're kind of running into right now is scale, right? Like, it's still prohibitively expensive to do R&D for these types of things, but then once they get something that is kind of working, how to actually get it at scale into restaurants, like the Impossible Suddenly make millions of them right right away. And the interesting thing is the meat industry has had this on lock for decades decades when it comes to scaling major production distribution Mm -hmm. everything like that they've had all these pieces in place for ages and so what's happening is some of the faux meat industry has been teaming up with some of the beef industry so the meat industry has basically said if we can't beat them join them like don't try to put them out of business buy them up and just own them yeah so that's been happening on kind of on both sides so on the meat industry side there's let's see tom hayes the former ceo of tyson foods the second largest meat producer on the planet is on record as saying quote if we can make the meat without the animal why wouldn't we do that They're seeing the writing on the wall. They're starting to do this sort of thing. There's also Michael McCain, the uber wealthy heir and head of the Canadian meat empire, Maple Leaf Foods. 
really is, you know, believing, he said, he knows the world is on fire. He knows that we're at a crisis here. Like, I know that it seems kind of post-apocalyptic, but for some people that post-apocalypse is sort of dawning and we're kind of in that transition period already. Well, and especially if you're a corporation, you are automatically thinking 40, 50 years into the exactly. future to sustain that business model, which is the right thing to do. Like you said, yeah. it's one of the really baffling things to me that the fossil fuel industry has not said, yeah, let's jump in on renewable stuff. Let's yeah. also have some wind farms. Let's buy these technologies and own them rather than trying to fight something which really seems inevitable if you're not living in denial. I think they have been buying some of that IP, but I think they've been burying it yeah, as opposed to actually developing it, which is another thing. But but so the meat industry is not being so stubborn. That's nice. Right. Well, especially in McCain's case, they've been investing in plant-based product lines several years before men in 10-gallon hats were eating Impossible Whoppers and Burger King commercials. So for example, <laughs> in 2017, Maple Leaf Foods acquired Light Life and they have plant-based hot dogs that are number one retail sales in the U.S. Now they're going to be pouring $310 million into a facility in Shelbyville, Indiana. And he said that this is going to be the largest alt meat production factory in North America. So the the goal for Maple Leaf is to expand plant-based businesses to $3 billion in sales over the next 10 years. One industry insider who spoke on background said that most meat processing companies don't see alt meat as much of a threat. Because most of the value from beef comes from the whole muscle cuts, the thick pieces, not minced or ground. And right now, cellular agriculture, which is like the Mm -hmm. science of the faux meat, they have not been able to successfully imitate or reproduce these yet. Right. There's a big difference between a steak and a burger. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One is, you know, it's kind of like a chicken breast or chicken nuggets. You can can tell the difference, Mm -hmm. right? So um, it's still ongoing. We're still kind of figuring out what this is going to look like. There are some predictions that throughout the 2020s, we're still going to be in this like taste test period, really targeting people who are carnivores or omnivores to be like, hey, hey, you know, it's the technology is getting better. But in terms of super widespread main adoption, especially when it comes to distribution, we got a ways to go. Well, you may rest assured I will be the last person standing (laughs) on that hill. I will say I will not touch it. I will starve before I eat this. Well, the article opens up with a great anecdote about Glenn Beck, the radio oh. guy. I know. I know. Great antidote <laughs> about he, Glenn Beck. He and I are so similar. That's you're, such a fantastic. You're, sta- you're standing with well, Glenn in, on this one. Yeah. In, in terms of your, uh, you know, stance on faux meat. Mm-hmm. So he basically, you know, a lot of the ads that he has, he's he's a rancher himself. He has cows mm. and he's got a lot of advertisers that are beef, 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 beef. Sure. And so they had him on air, you know, try, do a taste test, a blind test. Oh, see if you can Addy. figure out which one was which. He failed. Yeah, see that. Yeah, I, I have no doubt that they taste fine. I just there's a there's a yeah. personal like I don't want to be lied to, and I just it's yeah. yeah. And right now they also rely on a lot of pea protein, which I think there was some recent research that came out about feeding dogs grain free yes, foods with my, pea protein being an issue. Both of my dogs eat grain free food, and when I read that, I was like, oh no, like yeah. what? Oh, oh, but the trick to that is just supplement it with taurine, and then you're fine. Oh, just so you know. <laughs> well, you know, we get some stock in taurine right now, yeah, guys, and yeah, we're yeah. all going to be needing more of That's it. That's true. Now we got to have to supplement the people with taurine. We're going to find out pea protein's not all it's cracked up to be. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you slam it with the Red Bull, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, it's really important that we make progress with this because factory yeah. farming on a mass scale is an it's environmental absolutely catastrophe. No, ethically, I fully agree yeah. it's the way to go. Unfa- unfathomably just, cruel. But, yeah. um, and expensive, and it takes a lot of resources. And yes. it's wreaking havoc on our planet, for yeah. sure. Yeah. But, it, you know, it is unnerving when these companies, they are large, scary. Yeah, see, I just don't <laughs> trust them. And, and I think, I, honestly, I would just go vegetarian before I would... 
switch over to eating a whole bunch of pea protein burgers. Yeah. I would just you'd I, go big veg. Well, I'd just say, look, if I'm going to eat peas, I'll grow peas in my garden, and that's what we're all going to be doing because we're not going to be able to get food anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's that's where I'm going with it. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's true that if there was something like terribly wrong with some of this, you know, lab grown meat, we we would only find about it like you know 30 years later. Sure, it'd be way like, too like late. Like we found out about after tef- we've raised a whole generation like, on yeah, it. Yeah. We found out about Teflon, you know, like like right. yeah, like Whoops. 50 years after, like everyone. <laughs> Just now figuring out the sugar thing, too. And we are, you know, two generations raised on unbelievable Mm -hmm. amounts of sugar. But uh, the the environmental catastrophe is is already here. So, yeah, we do have to make a pretty hard, hard turn into this. And the cultural aspect of it is going to be so, like, frustrating, too, because, yes, there is going to be so much, like, ridiculous, like, kickback about, like, there is about, like, you know, people with their stupid plastic straws. Well, any change, any change, you're going to get people just being like, not my straw. And and I, then you, yeah. You'll I have wonder, some people fighting and you'll have some people working together. That is the way proce- progress works. I wonder if just stretching is going to be a big element of it, too, that just it becomes like, well, instead of, you know, having an impossible meat patty, you just like slowly like, you, you know, your beef patty in a, on, in a Whopper. It's like, like a 50-50. Oh, it's, it's, it becomes 50% oh. real meat. Then it becomes... 40 30 well, a lot 20, of fast you know. food hamburgers already have a huge amount of soy and yeah. like other sure tissue yeah and very few like of that. them are really meat anyway exactly you, it's very difficult to find a hundred percent actual meat yeah. in a lot of the fast food so that that yeah. transition's already kind of been happening but yeah. it's heartening to think about the frenemy aspect of how this is going to work it's going to be it's going to be like civil war we're going to divide brother <laughs> against brother <laughs> vegetarian brother against meat eating brother <laughs> <sighs> Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, I have just a quick little one. This is a strange article from The Guardian, but I loved it. It's called Claws Out, Why Cats Are Causing Chaos and Controversy Across Britain. And what Mm. what it basically is is just a series of little vignettes from different neighbors and groups of people in Britain who have had fights over cats mm. for a variety of reasons. And of course, the major most common problem is uh, cat theft. When, you know, for example, your neighbor feeds your cat and you're like, hey, cut it out. Now my cat thinks that your house is its house. And then they let him inside. They even had an incident where Nicola Lesborough would not only feed and actively encourage her neighbor's cat to come into her her house. She replaced his collar (gasps) with one that had her phone number on it. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. So the neighbors obviously were very upset. One of the great things about this article is you get to see all the names of the cats. This cat was named Ozzy. And uh, so Ozzy was, you know, following the food and saying, I don't care what's on my neck. And the neighbors very much did care. And they sued her in court. And they had a lawyer doing it. It was a lawyer friend doing it pro bono. Otherwise, it seems like it would be a little iffy. But he was interviewed in there and he said he was going to cite a precedent where Iraqi airways had been ruled to have stolen planes from Kuwait airways, even though Kuwait airways was still running the planes because the Iraqi airways had painted the planes with the Iraqi logo. (laughs) And so by relabeling it, even though Kuwait still owned the plane, they said, no, we rule that you have stolen these planes. You have to. There wasn't a more directly no, relevant this precedent. Was... <laughs> I mean, no, that was that I feel was like what... people have been suing each other about their pets for, like, a, for long a long time. time. Yeah, but it's, yeah. it's I think the switching of the collar is well, the claiming ownership right, by describing was... your brand or your information. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, and that he didn't actually get a chance to cite it because like right before they walked into court, the woman relented and said, OK, I agree to <laughs> restrictions on my interactions with this cat. Uh, but there were other ones that did not end so happily. A woman named Lana moved with her husband and kids to rural Scotland 
where they had two outdoor cats. They thought, oh, what a nice country air. They'll be great. It'll be a lot of fun. And then immediately the neighbors were kind of like, oh, hey, by the way, uh, you're going to want to keep your cats indoors uh -huh. because the groundskeeper shoots cats on site right. because they eat the pheasants. And they were like, well, maybe you don't have to shoot our cats. Like, And they were like, oh, uh, no, we're definitely yeah. going to shoot your cats. And they were like, well, then we're going to move. And they, they left. Like the whole neighborhood rejected them yeah. and were not. They chose to relocate as opposed to transition oh. their cats into being indoor only. And they were not even the only only once. What? Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure the cats appreciate that. They're like, yeah, I'm I mean, an outdoor okay, cat. Okay, but do they? Because cat appreciation, I think, is a whole other topic. <laughs> but, you know, at least in terms of, you know, like if someone's feeding me or whatever, like they are adaptable creatures. Well, and that was what a cat behavior expert was quoted as saying. They, somebody <laughs> asked her, do cats really love us? And she said, uh, they become attached. You can <laughs> interpret that as you will. Right. And this is a professional, so I think yeah. we can trust her. I mean, totally. I have two indoor cats. I, I, I know some people are very, very passionate about the idea that like an indoor cat, that's like, that's actually But there's people who think it's cruel. Yeah. 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 A cat wants to be out and about. I hadn't really thought, I mean, but it is true. Like, it, like the legal status of like an outdoor cat is an interesting thing mm -hmm. because I, I, you know, it's sort of your responsibility, but. You're just letting But it's cat still an there. animal and it's right. It's going to go do its own thing. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I know this is a huge problem, especially like in New Zealand and Australia, where they're not a native species and they're decimating a lot oh. of the natives. Like, I sure, get... having them wander around is a problem in and of itself. Yeah. Right yeah. there. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I have really, I have an 18 year old cat that she's starting to go through some early kidney disease. I've had her since she was a kitten and she's been indoor only her whole life with some supervised visits into like a screened patio. Like, I've been really careful about it. And we had a neighbor who moved in and they've got outdoor cats. And this outdoor cat, its name is Boy Cat. Boy That's cat. just the name of the cat because we <laughs> checked the collar because it was just like laying in the middle of the street. And right, cars just... are like swerving to avoid it. It's like, oh, girl. Yep. And it, it's You're going to move. It has a disproportionately small head for its body. And so we were already calling it like <laughs> pinhead cat. Like it's not a bright cat. And, you know, for weeks when it first came in here, it was on the roof of another neighbor's house, meowing plaintively. And everyone- To be let off. Maybe? Or just to what? mess with us. Because what would happen is like my husband and I, we'd bring a ladder up, try to bring the cat down. It would move away. <laughs> Other people are like, you know, going to call 911 or the police department, fire department, get this poor cat down. Cat can get down just fine. It's just messing with us. Uh... And so now we have this whole... Whatever. I have a lot of thoughts on this subject. <laughs> so what you're saying is you wish that neighbor would move. You're like the only solution to this. Or consider, and, and here's the issue too. Like I know that transitioning cats that are accustomed to being outdoors as being indoors only. is tricky. Right. Like they could start marking. They could start destroying everything. There are, you know, hormones that you can use to plug in to kind of like soothe them and be like, yo, this is t chill time. Like right. this is your life now. But <laughs> people have catnip haze yeah. going on. And I don't want to restrict other people and tell them this is how you have to do things. But just the concept that your earlier point, Curtis, of just owning an animal, like yeah. that's an issue anyway, right? How natural is it to really own and keep animals? And so is the way that we own and keep them something to codify anyway? Right. Well, and they actually had an expert, re retired police detective Colin Butcher runs The Pet Detectives. Colin which, Butcher. Colin Butcher. <laughs> and uh -huh. the entire business is uh, finding stolen cats, specifically if you suspect cat seduction, which he separates from cat theft. If you feel that your cat is disappearing for too long during the day, you think maybe somebody is yeah. feeding them, trying to trying That's to swipe seduction. them. He will he will stalk the cat and figure out where it's going. And this is his whole business. He he said that they have had a huge increase in uh, cat seduction cases. He warns that if your cat is gaining weight, returning home smelling unusual, or is freshly groomed, these are signs mm. that someone else has an eye on your pet. And that most cases of cat seduction, if you don't nip them in the bud, they turn into cat theft. You see, this is 
a problem I've always had with the two Ace Ventura movies. Is that <laughs> That's the problem. There's so much there's so much focus on his his human buffoonery and so little exploration of like what might actually be involved in being a pet detective. That's true. We need to know more of the logistics like cat seduction. about his business. Yeah. Like, you know, that, that's Colin good stuff. Colin Butcher, actual pet detective, yeah. would right. be a reality show. I know some cable channel would it jump prob- on. It probably oh, exists. For sure. it's, it probably already exists. <laughs> Turn the TV on right now. It's, it's, right? it's playing on the learning channel right now. <laughs> I guarantee you. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We want to give a shout out to our new patrons. Thank you so much. We appreciate your support. If you want to be cool like them, you can go to patreon.com slash damn interesting week. Buy us a cup of coffee. Give us a little pat on the head. Let us know that you like the podcast. Some of the articles we did not get to today. Carnivorous dinosaur discovered in Utah was a true Jurassic nightmare. This rat had no brain and it somehow lived a normal life. And how smart were our ancestors? Blood flow provides a clue. So check out those and all the ones we talked about today on damninteresting.com. Come back and join us next week. We will be here. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. And I'm Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.